This is Design School is a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. This year, we're changing it up a bit. A little bit shorter, a little more focus, and a lot more conversation. So welcome to year two of This is Design School. And now, on with the show. This is Design School. Karen Chang, thanks for joining us on This is Design School. We're really excited to have you here today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me to be on the show. Yeah. Yep. So we're kind of going to just ask a few questions and then kind of see where the conversation goes from there. Yeah. And uh, so the first thing we were wondering about is um, what's your backstory? Where did you start in your career or in your path in design? Well, I probably have one of the more unusual career histories as a designer because um, I have an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering from Penn State and most graphic designers don't start that way so but um, mm -hmm. my parents are both from Taiwan and like a lot of Asian parents they're very keen to see us get into something that would be safe <laughs> financially you know secure um, and so they really encouraged us to either be a doctor or to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so I went to Penn State and they had um, a program for, um, an honors program for, especially for women and minorities who would get into STEM fields essentially. So I went through, um, I went through that. It was an honors program in chemical engineering. And so it was kind of unfortunate for me because I was always more interested in the arts. Um, and so I had at different times wanted to be an artist or wanted to be a writer. But my dad said that um, he wouldn't support me if I would go that way. And, you know, I, I guess I wasn't totally sure what that would mean, you know, becoming a writer or becoming an artist. So but when I went through school, then um, I had an internship for Procter & Gamble, the consumer products company. Mm -hmm. And so when I was there, I worked in chemical engineering on liquid tide yeah and so i met some people on the brand side of tide they have a brand management program and so um i realized that that could be also you know financially stable and the fact that they worked with advertising proctor is also a very numerically driven company and so they were sort of mm -hmm. interested in having an engineer it was kind of the beginning of data analysis and marketing they yeah. purchased scanner data everything that you buy in a supermarket you know goes through that scanner and so they had you know a vast amount of data to analyze because you could look at it all over the country at any supermarket and so forth so i interviewed over there and um, after they have a long process, they actually have their own little SAT type test and everything that you have mm -hmm. to take and, and so forth. And so it was kind of unusual. But then when I was, I was basically hired there in their advertising or marketing department as my first job. And so I, that was fine. And I worked on a brand called Dash, which isn't um, around anymore. It was one of their first value brands in laundry. Mm -hmm. And then I worked on Downy Sheets, oh. <laughs> where the major competitor is uh, Snuggle the Bear. And so um, I just got really interested in design by working at the uh, with the advertising agency. Mm -hmm. So because it was in Cincinnati, the University of Cincinnati is a fine design program. And so um, I went to school at night for a while. And and then I decided to apply to a three-year program that they had where you would 
um, you know, spend the first year as kind of a boot camp and then do the two-year master program. So I went through that. And then after doing that, I decided I'd like to become a faculty member because I'd been assigned as being a TA while mm-hmm. I was in graduate school, mm-hmm. and I really liked that. So um, one of the faculty members there was friends with Doug Wadden, who is a longtime, you know, sort of um, pillar of the University of Washington design program. And it was sort of stupid, but I've been out in Seattle for a wedding in the summer. And I was like, oh, it's really nice. There are so many Asian people, you know, because I was from Allentown, Pennsylvania, and we were the only Asian family in town. Like when we would go around to the supermarket, people would follow us and point, for example. So I was like, wow, there's other locations where you know, the environment's different. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when this position opened up, I, I interviewed out here and I really liked the university and I liked the city and, um, you know, it seemed to be a really good solid program. So mm-hmm. I thought I'd move out here. Yeah. How did it feel like, uh, taking that leap, switching disciplines after putting all that effort into learning engineering? That was super frightening. Well, it wasn't frightening to get the job at Proctor. That felt pretty safe because I thought, well, I'll go there. And I was thinking about it this morning. Um, I think the salary was $30,000. And then I felt really great because... um, they were going to give me a $3,000 advance. So I bought like a little used car so I could drive from my home in Allentown (laughs) to Cincinnati. And then I used the rest of the money to buy a bed at Ikea or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of felt like, okay, I've got an apartment, I've got a car, and I have this job. And I just thought, well, pretty much nothing could go wrong. You know, but it was a much bigger leap to leave my job at Proctor and go to school for design because it would have been much more logical. I thought about leaving and going to an another another corporate um, product firm that I might enjoy more. Like mm-hmm. I was interested in Clairol, for example, or they're also the people who make Mars candies. I thought, well, I could go to these other kinds of, of jobs. Um, but I really liked making things. Um, and so that was a huge issue, you know, trying to decide, well, I'm going to leave what ostensibly looks like a really good job and is secure. And, you know, even my family was okay with the fact that I'd left engineering because I was still working at a Fortune 100 company. Yeah. Yeah. So it was actually very, um, very difficult, you know, for because you are taking a risk and um, because it was so unknown and because my whole family was so against it. That yeah. was really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. JP, how did you decide to go back to grad school? I uh, I actually missed the critiques. Mm. For me, the the idea of coming in and doing something for for eight to five, nine to six, sometimes twelve hours a day, was still gratifying for me. But the thing that really that I missed was bringing it to someone and say. I'm having trouble with this. What do you think? And they'd be like, oh, it looks so good already. Okay, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something else. Or getting it back and later on hearing, well, I wish we would have done this. I wish we would have done that. I'm like, I asked for more or I wanted to do this or or, or what have you. So it was, it was really missing a an environment in which people had the same sort of knowledge base to to have a more in-depth conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Where were you working when, before grad school? I did a couple of different things. Right when I came out of uh, undergraduate, I worked for um, my alma mater, uh, Valparaiso. Um, then I went in and uh, did some other freelance work after that. And then 
pretty much went right back into grad school. So it was a it was a quick turnaround. I was like, oh no, no, I don't want to do. I want I want back in. I want in the environment. And similar to you, Karen, and that uh, I did a TA position. Really enjoyed it. Loved the atmosphere. Being able to contribute and to have that conversation, to be controlling that conversation, to move things around. Um, and then I just stayed in it. I just thought, to be fair, I think that, you know, depending on where you're working as a designer, some firms definitely have more of a critique culture, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe have like more collegial kind of relationships with, um, you know, other designers or even, you know, senior designers. And yeah. that, yeah. you know, it depends on where you work, I think. Yeah. And I think that that's probably more so now than we, we've seen, you know, 10, 15 years ago, where it was, you, you had to have that larger corporation that had already kind of it built in that we're building a product and we're wanting that product to be better so continuously revise 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 as opposed to now i think even smaller corporations or or smaller entities are we want to do something better is this the best we can do revise 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 yeah Yeah, more knowledge of the process Mm -hmm. but i also think that designers um are sometimes pretty proactive about developing that culture we had a group of three alum who went to facebook you know fairly early i guess in 2009 or so and they actually did not have a critique culture at that time i mean people were making stuff and i think it went to the head guy you know mark zuckerberg and Mm -hmm. they looked at it and decided what to do and one of the things they began to do is like institute a time and a date a location in which people would show their stuff but they had a number of difficulties I think because some of the people participating were from different cultures like engineering for example and I know they had to actually um, set aside rules and make everybody obey the rules Mm -hmm. that um, you could ask for certain kinds of responses or you had to come to a series of critiques you couldn't just come to one critique and then cannot come back and show new work or things like that. And they had to limit the size because I think at one point it got pretty popular and they're like, okay, 75 people around one computer, this isn't very, you know, yeah, this doesn't work. (laughs) So, but I think that's interesting that, um, you know, that they had to kind of build it from the ground up and they experienced a lot of the challenges, I guess, of making a culture respond to that. Yeah. Mm Um, I think that the critique culture is about growth and that growth um, we see not only just in the classroom, but also in uh, our, our own environments of, of uh, growing as an artist, but growing in a, uh, in a company. And I'm wondering if that's something that we've experienced outside of academia um, more so than we have just in the critique setting that we know at the end of the project or in the middle of a project, we're going to have it happen Chad, you're coming from a management consulting firm. <laughs> what uh, what do you see as that t- sort of growth, that uh, that critiquing culture? Is that available to you in that kind of area? Well, I mean, I think it's a similar story to what Karen was just talking about. The people at Facebook is, I I went in and hired was hired as a marketer. I was the first person with a design background that they'd ever hired before, so there wasn't other designers around. Mm-hmm. But it was an environment where they noticed there was something different about the way I thought and approached things that was very different from, you know, the lot of people with MBA backgrounds. MBAs think a lot differently than designers do. Um, and they liked it. And it, it was an environment enough that the, the CEO um, fostered that he was just very open. And so if people had good ideas, 
he was very approachable and so it was you know he saw and they saw that I was doing approaching my work in a different way and then we talked about how that could be proliferated throughout the company a little bit more and so it was a matter of you know banding together colleagues that didn't have the same background that I did but leveraging each other's skills to kind of Mm-hmm. create a culture that I don't know if it was so much about critique because at that point it was more about um, teaching and spreading an approach to the way we worked maybe critique is like the next phase of that but mm-hmm. yeah I had a guy come into my class we did some infographics about K-12 through uh, information and so mm-hmm. he was a K-12 through education expert and he told me afterwards he was really impressed at just the classroom experience because he was essentially observing a critique and he mentioned to me that you know one of the life skills that people really need is learning how to give and receive feedback Mm -hmm. and that our teaching in this specific way was such a good preparation for life overall and I often think of that because um, there's a kind of pattern you see repeated as the kids come in as freshmen and they become seniors to how I think receptive they are to both being able to show their work which, of course, is a really vulnerable thing for them to do, mm-hmm. um, and also be able to solicit feedback. And it can be very disappointing, even for myself, when you show design work to a client or a colleague and that they point out flaws in your thinking, or um, even if you know that there's a flaw that you're worried about. But it can also be such a wonderful collegial experience, too, when you work together with a colleague and you both you know, focus on different ways that something can be improved. So I thought that was interesting because I think working with students and critiquing has changed in my life overall, like how I receive and give feedback, even mm-hmm. in things like my marriage or, you know, when I go to the post office and they're like, you should have waited in this line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you just kind of see the possibilities for communication differently when you're engaged in critique all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you think that we do a, a good enough job, and I think either either one of you can answer this, a good enough job of preparing our students for being good critiquers or having uh, criticism given and taken in their day-to-day lives? I think we could definitely um, be more direct to them. I think sometimes a lot of what we're doing with students in the classroom is we're simply modeling. Uh, I've tried to write a little bit about critique, and this has been a little on my mind because AIGA National is coming up, and then I was asked to um, moderate a panel um, about critique. So I've invited Michael Beirut and Marsha Lawson. You know, Marsha Lawson is an AIGA educator at the University of Chicago, and Michael Beirut is, of course, like a Michael massive Beirut, design yeah. star. <laughs> yeah. So, and I thought that would be interesting because, you know, obviously as a professional designer he's in charge of critique in a different way getting feedback Mm -hmm. from clients and at pentagram i'm sure he has some role in mentoring junior designers and so forth and then marcia is a faculty member but also has a design practice so i think that um so i was thinking about sometimes i think in design in our classes we simply go into a critique and then you behave a certain way and the students start to realize like oh i see this is how it's gonna be i'm supposed to i get called on i'm supposed to say something like you set certain expectations you could be much more um, clear about it like before critique you could have them read something about critique you could actually talk about critique you could even talk about aspects of vulnerability and how that might change 
you know, the way they look at uh, and respond to people, mm -hmm. you know, but I think frankly that mostly we do it in a very ad hoc way in the studio where mm -hmm. we deal with problems that come up when they come up. We don't really set expectations in a really strong verbal way prior to a critique happening. Yeah. But I mean, there's also, especially in the, the class you're talking about, like our, the introductory level classes at UW, it's also being able to see that model come from different people within the course of one class, mm -hmm. since they switch around from all the TAs and the professor, and we all probably do it a little bit differently. I thought um, it was interesting that you played music before your <laughs> class. Yeah. I, I've seen other faculty do that too, like Jamie Walker. I've tried to do that, but it, it's a little bit of a time burden thing because mm -hmm. you have to get there 20 minutes in advance, set up your music and so forth, and have music yeah. that you think is appropriate. Yeah. But I do think actually setting a certain kind of atmosphere, I also think sometimes it goes too far. Like yeah. I'm not sure I'm that kind of teacher personality <laughs> that I would play music. Yeah. I mean, that has to do something too with, I think you have to teach you know according to the to the kind of personality and teacher who you are if you yeah. try to take on something else it can feel pretty phony yeah do you do anything special at PLU I, I used to do uh, music um, before before class started I would get there um, my classroom is right next door to my office so it was just a, a an easy walk in and, and hit record or hit play um, but I've gotten away from that, and I'm doing different things. I, I mainly just come in right at the beginning of class, so that way that I give them time to acclimate to themselves, builds a, uh, a community of, I love what I did, I hate what I did, I can't believe I got this done, did you help, thank you for helping me, you know, and so forth. So they're, they're all us against me, them against me, there we go. Them against me mentality, because I, I want them to be able to feel confident in if I am having a conversation with someone that someone else can come in and say, well, this is how I see it, um, whether it's defending them, though I'm not very malicious about my critiques to, to people. But at the same time, I want them to, to be able to say, you have a buddy in here, rely on the buddy to help you get through that conversation if they need to. I've done that sometimes in some classes where, um, especially at the beginning of the quarter, if they're a new group where I pair them up, and so one person has to critique the other or two people together critique a third person's work. And I think that's great for an icebreaker. There's not that huge pressure of I've got to say something right now with everybody listening, with the teacher listening. Mm -hmm. you know. But it's true, too, because the kids all know each other. Like That makes a huge difference in their comfort level in critique. I was asked once to go to this company on the West Coast, and they said, would you come and talk about making a critique culture? Like, well, it's hard for me to really know what you need. Like, do you know each other very well? right now you know how comfortable are you with each other and so I think in 166 the class we were talking about mm -hmm. there's a certain competition in the class too yeah. where only so many of them are going to make it that inhibits the critique tremendously yeah you know so but there is that moment I do try to go early first of all so that the kids who don't have the work can come to you and cry and you can say okay <laughs> well you know do you want to go home or do you want to stay these kinds of things mm -hmm. but there is this moment of revelation and I see this in the critique research um literature that that's one thing really liked about critique that you see all these responses and the kids enjoy I think revealing what they've done and there's a mix of things like some people say oh I didn't know you were going to do that that looks great and other people say don't look at this I just have this right now this isn't my mm -hmm. my final you know so I think that's interesting as a community builder the pinup phase yeah mm -hmm. do you feel that you have grown as a professor after doing all of these types of critiques 
for as many years as you've been doing it? Oh, sure. I remember when I first started, I remember this incident where we had a professor at the University of Cincinnati who was so picky about how you would put things up. And actually, I, I you know, really admire him, and he's a very precise guy. Um, but if it wasn't straight, he wouldn't begin the critique. So eventually the system emerged where the first person would pin up a piece of string and everybody else would align to that. But the first couple times, I think we took another 40 minutes or something getting all all the work on the wall <laughs> to the point in which, you know, Dr. Boalo would be willing to actually say something about it. And I thought that was good because we were freshmen and it kind of instilled in us like a respect your work and respect the process of critique, mm -hmm. you know. And so I remember when I first came, I tried to institute the same kind of thing. I thought, okay, I'm going to do this too. So in my first typography class, I complained that they didn't, you know, put the work up properly and I made them redo it over and over. And then I think the next time I went in, they actually had deliberately pinned up weird stuff to kind of freak me out, like ripped up pieces of cardboard like that wasn't, you know, that wasn't actually the assignment. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure what to do. So I looked at the work. I said nothing. Then I went to the bathroom because I thought, okay, I'm just going to think in here <laughs> about how I want want to respond, you know? <laughs> and then when I came back, they had taken that off and put up the work normally. So I guess they probably thought I was filled with anger or something, and then they <laughs> fixed it, you know? But after all that, like, I mean, I just think, why did I try so hard to be something I'm not? Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. like I wouldn't approach it that way. Now what I do is when the students are putting up, if I see it's crooked, I say, see, if you use this line on the wall, you can line it up and make it straight. Like I help them do it properly. Like why did they have to make it such a thing of yeah. we were idiots, they were the authority, we had to learn. I'm not sure that that was, you know, I mean, maybe for other people that worked and that was their personality, but I can get the same effect now yeah. without working so hard for it, I think, yeah. and without getting so upset. <laughs> Chad, you're doing critiques now in comparison to the ones that you and I were involved in. What kind of instructor are you when it comes to critiques? Well, I think the, the main difference between... Uh, being a critique participant at PLU and being a critique participant in grad classes and then leading a critique in the undergrad classes is the size difference. You know, I mean, at PLU our classes were always relatively small and then our grad classes are always small and you have large chunks of time where you can, you know, really like talk through things and in most of the critiques that I've led, it's always like, all right, we've got an hour, there's 20, 25 people here. It means everybody gets about like three minutes, give or take it. So then it's like, all right, tell us like what you need from us. So there's different tactics of like moving through that. Um, one thing that both um, Karen and uh, Christine encouraged us to do was have them start by uh, looking through all each other's work and putting tabs on stuff they thought was communicating something good and you can use different color of tabs to like say something different about the assignment like this was uh like had a good composition so i'm going to use this color and this one uh was communicating the idea really well so i'm going to use this color and so um then you can start with like the good examples of working through critique and um kind of work your way down from there but um i think mostly i try to approach it from um, and I think this also came back in some of my reviews is I always looked at it is especially in that class one of the things I was trying to get them to do was learn how to critique not just hear critique from me so oftentimes I would let the room be silent and be 
there was a few times where I said, well, if you guys don't want to say anything, we can just go home. <laughs> and then, believe it or not, somebody would start talking. And um, so I think that in and of itself and kind of letting it get uncomfortable for a little bit is fine because they realize, oh, well, critique is a give and take. Like, I have to give it in order to get it. And so um, I would try and push them to have a conversation about each other's work. And then I would chime in at the end to give my opinion because I want to I want to see what they're like what stage of the process they're at of like a what they can give in you know like what kind of language are they adopting from the lectures and to be able to talk about work but then I don't want to influence like what their perspective is yet and then I chime in at the end and mm -hmm. then they pick up and usually by the end of the class it's moving much faster but mm -hmm. how do you see a maybe students taking critiques over the last 17 years, 11 years, several years, several semesters. Quarters. Quarters. You mean like, <laughs> do you think that the students respond to critique differently as millennials than they did when they were Generation X? Do you think I mean, that could be, Somewhat, yeah. could be something. I think it could also be interesting to, because um, I know we've, uh, we've sometimes had professionals come in and critique and what, like, how that changes the critique process. Did you think it was a lot different, for example, in your grad studio when you you know, had professionals come in and do critique? What was the difference between having an academic run a critique and having a professional from a corporate office yeah. come and do a critique? Well, I think part of it was that whole class was framed in a much more corporate uh, lens in general. Their whole idea was oftentimes the fault we see of designers coming out of academia is they don't it takes them a while to get back to the idea of understanding constraints, whether they're business constraints or client constraints. And they wanted us to experience that again within the academic setting, which is more safe, practicing some of the things we'd already learned. Critique was often focused a little bit more on... Just meeting those constraints. Well, for um, example, Linda Norlin is a different person, too. But well, I mean, I guess, she is yeah. much more of an academic in yeah. some ways. Yeah, she. I would say she has a very academic mindset. And especially in uh, if we're talking about seminar classes and writing, um, she looked at our work and encouraged us to write in a very academic manner. Mm -hmm. And then transitioning to the faculty was actually... Uh, well, the full-time faculty was uh, actually much more loose mm -hmm. um, and much more open because uh, they were more focused on ideas rather than um, mm. introducing us to something new, mm -hmm. if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, and then, yeah, but even bringing professionals in to do critique, they're very focused on... I would describe it often as more tactical. When I've brought yeah. somebody in to do a critique from outside, they're very like, well, what are you trying to do? What are the constraints of the problem and yeah. so forth? Let me provide feedback on on that. Yeah. You know, And there's a certain assumption because they're used to talking to other designers of you know certain things. Mm -hmm. You know, So you, often the conversation moves at a kind of different level, I think, because of that. Yeah. You know, so, but I don't know that I thought that an academic, if I was asked to come into another audience and do that, if I would necessarily respond that much differently. They yeah. do hold the floor more. Yeah. I do notice that professional designers, when they come in, they're, you know, they don't know the students either, so they can't say, Vicky, what would you say? <laughs> you know, but they yeah. are less inclined. They do see their role as, you know, providing the feedback, you know, holding the floor, providing that information. Yeah. You must use a number of guests at PLU. 
Surprisingly, no. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. You have, you have yeah. alumni come in. Every on once in a while, but um, even fewer and fewer these past couple of years, I've, I find that um, our students are starting to expand outward further and further away from PLU. And so it's harder to find students to come in, or, or alumni, excuse me, yeah. alumni to come in on, you know, a, midway during the week, midway during the, the year, um, midway during the work hours. So, um, so yeah, um, I would love to, to have more and more of that kind of interaction. But as, what you were talking about, Karen, is definitely true. Even in the scenario that I have trained them how to take a critique, how to give a critique, they find I find that their mindset of the way that they work in their own environment is I will take the floor, I will tell you what's good, what's bad, what do I'm seeing, what I'm thinking, what I think you should do, and then you can ask a question. <laughs> and and sometimes that is uh that's informative, not always the the most helpful, but definitely something that students need to know that here is a different way of of critiquing here's a different way of gathering and gaining more information i think that has something to do with critique culture as well even when you're working professionally if you work along on a project with a certain group of stakeholders you know or investors in it and then somebody comes in from the outside and like provides some input that can often be quite detrimental to a project just because they haven't gone through the process there is a certain coalescing that happens around a certain thinking and so i think that sometimes when you bring an outsider into a class critique where certain directions have been established it can be very difficult for the outsider to provide meaningful input i think you Using a guest critic has to happen at the right time, you know, mm. for them to be valuable. Yeah, I was in a meeting uh, a couple of months ago, and the um, the client that we were thinking about working with had asked us a question about: um, Is it possible to come in to talk to our designers about? He, he didn't use the word, but critiques, how to give criticism, how to take criticism. And uh, we tried to have that conversation a little bit further. And I remember the analogy that we used, which was that a lot of our designers are caught trying to choose what color of tie to, to wear. And we want them to figure out whether they need a tie or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it was funny because I quickly whipped out, um, we at PLU, we, um, we don't care about the color of tie. We want to teach you how to tie the tie. <laughs> and I'm not sure now thinking about if that was the right answer or not. But it's one of those things where even once you're in the field long enough, sometimes that critique mentality or the, the essence of wanting to receive feedback is not always there or, or it's starting to, to dwindle away. Um, have you seen alumni come back with that kind of, I need to know how to approach this or... Um, when they come into the classroom, you don't see that same sort of mindset of X, Y, and Z of of trying to get what is good, what is bad, what needs improvement, or or however you would run a critique. Hmm. I don't know. 
When you were talking, I was actually thinking about a paper I'd read where um, a woman from MIT who's a researcher has made something, it's a computer that in a way is a design critic. It can look at various layouts and give you a score for how cluttered it is and what is salient, you know, what is um, popping out. And so um, she showed it to various design groups um, and there were very um, mixed feedback about it. Many people saw it as a weapon that they could use to like say beat management back. Like management would say okay put on these five more things into this layout and they're like no because the clutter score is already at 10 <laughs> for example which I thought was interesting. And then other people actually also felt it was a valuable tool for critique because um, it enabled them to have a discussion about certain things that they would say look this tool says that the borders are really coming out who cares about the borders? We need people to look at X, you know? So I thought what was kind of interesting about what you were saying is that, sure, alum come back and they are more tactical. They're thinking about these things. Um, but that maybe, maybe their problems are more about they're such a diverse group of people you work with once you leave academia. It's so pleasant to have a critique with other designers because you kind of know what you can and can't say and how to say things in a way that provide feedback that are hedging, you know, or open-ended. And you're able yeah. to use a certain level of language, certain yeah. vocabulary. and There's yeah. a certain camaraderie because yeah. you're both designers. Yeah. And so what I thought was interesting about this external tool, even though it was frightening too, that like say layouts I made would be assessed by this machine and somehow scored. But I thought it was interesting as a tool that would allow non-designers to get on the playing field with you, you know, that they would be able to kind of express themselves because often they don't have the same language as you to express what their concerns are. Mm -hmm. But don't you think that's part of the actual educational experience that we provide as uh, academics in higher education is that you're coming here, you're coming to us, you're coming to our institutions to learn these things if a program can be used to give, a, give you a score of this is, this is good, now move on. We've, we've kind of watered down our experience even more. Well, I wouldn't want that to be the ultimate judge. I guess I still see that as a midway tool, just like when you go to a press check and they check the density of the ink. Like, okay, that gives me certain information, but I'm still going to tell you, like, I want it to be redder or yellower or bluer. Like, I just saw it as an additional tool. Yeah. But I thought what was interesting about it is it was a way to facilitate conversation with non-designers. And I think it's easy as a designer to get caught up in your own... Um, um, thinking idea and emotions and I thought if this thing helped you see it objectively I mean sure it could probably be used for evil you know for design evil <laughs> but I also thought it wasn't you know in a way it wasn't necessarily evil in fact I think the creator was surprised that so many people just automatically assumed that the algorithm was fine like no one questioned the score that people just thought about what they could do with it mm -hmm. you know so I think it is interesting the relationships we have with machines that people just assume oh it works yeah oh yeah yeah. Well, even machines are, I was just reading how the MBTI, the Myers-Briggs Personality mm -hmm. Assessment, isn't backed by the academic community at Oh, all. I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, I thought that thing was bulletproof. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's not backed by the, or supposedly, um, it's not supported by the academic community whatsoever. Huh. Um, and so it's like this whole thing that so many people have put so many eggs in, and oh, yeah. really it's actually quite... Um, monetarily driven oh <laughs> well that's good because yeah. i never thought my myers-briggs score was 
accurate. So now yeah. I can feel free to disregard that. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's the same ideas <laughs> that, I mean, we develop a, a score or an algorithm to talk about talk about critique or give some sort of foundation for critique but you know how like then how do we establish some sort of standard or norm for that Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean actually that's true because the myers-briggs like at least the way i've seen it used is it's usually given to a group of people so Mm -hmm. then you can talk about your team and whether your team is working well so in a way it doesn't really matter if the score is as accurate as long as you have a conversation about what's working and not working in your team exactly Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah Yeah. Well, I think that's probably a good place for us to stop. There's yeah. the future. Yep. Machines. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Karen, very much. Oh, yeah, that was really fun. This is Design School is recorded at the KPLU Studios. For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. The intro music for This is Design School is Electronic Nostalgic composed by Paul Tyen and published under the Creative Commons on SoundCloud. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you want to hear on the show. Join us on Twitter at JP Avila and at Chad P. Hall. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. And share us with your designer friends. Bye for now. Bye for now.